You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this week, church family. Glad you're here with us. For those that are guests among us, I want to welcome you. My name is, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. I'm glad, glad you're with us. I would love to invite you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 9. And uh, as you are turning there, um, let me also say to any dads in the room, happy Father's Day. Hope you've had a good one. Um, And I've got some good news for us here this week. You know, last week we spent the entire time in Genesis 6 through 8 looking at the flood and looking at judgment, looking at the destruction of the earth. This week, good news for Father's Day, we're going to be talking about covenants and rainbows and eating steaks. So it's going to be a great time together here in God's Word. Genesis chapter 9, continuing the study. And again, last week, what we looked at was um, the account of God's judgment upon the earth in Genesis 6 through 8 of the flood. And we'd seen in that text that the heart of every human being was filled with evil, had, had um, evil thoughts all the time, always. And yet God in his mercy, even while bringing judgment upon the wicked, was so faithful to provide rescue for the righteous and provided uh, Noah and his family a way out through the ark. And we saw last week that even gave us the greater picture of, yes, the judgment that is still to come upon the earth, but the great rescue that has been made available in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross. But what we saw last week is really a, a bigger theme of kind of decreation and recreation. I'm not even sure if you caught that last week. There were so many parallels in Genesis 6 through 8 of, uh, with Genesis 1 through 2 and the creation account that are paralleled in those texts. For instance, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that when God was forming the earth, the earth was just a big abyss of water and God separated the waters, made an expanse in the middle, which was the sky and put the waters above and gathered the waters below and restrained them in their places. And yet when we get to Genesis chapter seven, we saw that how God calls the flood was removing that strength, literally that restraint, the waters above and the waters below now started making their way upon the earth and flooding. It was a decreation of what God had done in Genesis 1. And then at the end of the flood in Genesis chapter 8, we see those waters separated once more and we see them restrained back in their place. It's a beautiful picture that parallels what happened in creation. Also in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we saw the ruach, the Hebrew word for spirit, for wind, for breath. And it was the spirit who was hovering over the waters as creation was being formed. And in the same way, in Genesis 8, verse 1, we saw, again, the ruach. Now, the wind blowing across the waters that brought the abating of the waters into place. We also saw in Genesis chapter 1, it was the animals whom God had created to go fill the earth before the humans populated. In the same way, in Genesis chapter eight, we see the animals exit the ark and go fill the earth. And then the families of the ark follow. In Genesis chapter one, we see the command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. And now again here, notice in chapter nine, verse one, Noah is told to be fruitful and to multiply. 
God is starting over with a new humanity. It is reflection of Genesis 1 and 2. And there is a new Adam, as it were, here in Noah. Many parallels are between Noah and Adam that are very similar to one another. And now in chapter 9, what God is doing is he is going to um, create this new humanity once again with a new promise that will serve to govern this new humanity only in a new way that will now give an account for the marring of sin upon the earth. Um, in fact, that's what you're going to see in this account is, is a, a picture of this new humanity only now with sin in view, whereas Genesis 1 and 2, sin was not in view in the garden. And the promise that is going to be made here at the first half of chapter 9 is often called the Noahic Covenant. It is a covenant, a promise that God is going to make here with Noah for the rest of creation. And covenants are a big deal in Scripture, by the way. Um, in fact, many would argue that a covenant, which is an unbreakable promise, a covenant is how God deals with his people most directly through these covenants. And there's different kinds of covenants in the scriptures. We have what's known as a parody covenant, which are two covenants that are made by either two individuals or between God and humanity. And in a parody covenant, when you have a two-way covenant, there is typically conditions the if-then statements, and with that come blessing when the covenant is obeyed and cursing when the covenant is disobeyed. And in other times, we have a different kind of covenant called a Caesarean covenant or a vassal covenant, which is a one-way covenant. And it's usually made with a sovereign king that is unconditional towards his subjects. And that is the case of what we're going to see here in Genesis 9 is a one-way covenant that God makes. And there are no conditions in it. It is God simply saying, I am who I say I am. I'm going to do what I say I do. And he makes this promise here. And so I'm going to read this passage before us. Then I want to give us three things that we can learn about this promise or this covenant from Genesis 9. Follow along with me, starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, now I'm going to give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud 
and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this is God's word. And uh, there's three things I wanna show you about this covenant, about this, um, about this promise that God has made. I want you to see its promise, what it's about. I want you to see its provision and its prohibitions. And I want us to see its picture that God gives as a sign here. But first notice the promise. What is this promise, this covenant of Genesis nine? What is it all about ultimately? Well, I want you to notice it's stated twice in this text. The first one is actually at the end of chapter eight in verse 21, when God is smelling the aroma of Noah's sacrifice that he had made to him. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. But then he says it even more explicitly in chapter nine, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Ultimately, what God is promising in this covenant, he is promising preservation and never again obliteration. That's the ultimate promise that's in this text. Now, he's not saying there's never gonna be any more judgment. That's not what he's saying in this text. We already saw last week, there's a future judgment coming in Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead as to whether we have put our trust in him or whether we have rejected him. There is a judgment coming. So that's not saying there's no more judgment. It's not saying that God will never be angry at sin again, that sin doesn't have any consequences anymore. He's not saying that either, nor is he saying there'll be no more natural disasters, that there'll never be a flood in regionalized areas across the globe. There will just... Never be, he says, as long as the earth remains in this current form until that day when Christ returns and makes all things new, as long as the earth remains in this form, God will never again destroy the earth with a flood globally. Now, why is this important? Why is this such a big promise that's made here? And I just want you to imagine if this covenant wasn't made, What if we didn't have the first 17 verses here? What if we just skipped over this and went right on into the Tower of Babel here in the coming weeks? What would be the problem? Well, for one, not only for Noah and his family in particular, but even for us today, what would happen every time it began to cloud up? You go, "Uh uh-oh, is this it? Is he gonna do it again? Like you're gonna be living in constant PTSD if this thing's gonna happen here. Every time a thunderstorm rolls through Dallas, every one of us are now paranoid. Is this the day that God's gonna end it all? Every time you pass by a boat maker, you're like, does that dude know something? I don't need to, I don't know. Hey dude, you know something? You know, that's how we would be. We'd be always like freaking out every time. We'd hear it. We'd be like my chihuahua. Every time it thunders, just goes crazy. No, in fact, this is a covenant of mercy. 
And it's a mercy not just to Noah and his family. I want you to notice it's a covenant for every creature on planet earth for all generations. This is not a covenant that's just made to one unique person. This is not a covenant that's made to one unique biological, genealogical line of promise. This is not a covenant to just Jews or to just Christians. This is a covenant to every part of creation. Chapter eight, verse 21, every living creature. Chapter nine, verse nine, everyone who comes after all the offspring. Verse 10, every living creature. Verse 12, every living creature, all generations. Verse 15, every living creature, all flesh. Verse 16, every living creature, all flesh. Verse 17, all flesh on earth. Can it be more emphatic enough? This promise is for the entire planet. It is for the just and the unjust together. So the promise here is unconditionally unilateral between God and the earth that he will never again flood the earth as long as the earth remains. That's the promise. Now with that come some provisions and some prohibitions that are in this covenant. Now, technically, there are no conditions in this covenant. There's no if-then statements like we saw with Adam. If the day that you eat of the tree, then you will surely die. You're not gonna see the if-then statements that are gonna be in Mosaic law when that's covenant's given. There's no conditions here. There's no if-then. It's just God saying, I will never. In this regard, I will never again. And that's what makes this one unilateral or cesarean in nature. Doesn't matter what man does in his sin, God will not deal with it through a flood. However, it doesn't mean there's not obligations. Doesn't mean there's not boundaries that are put in this covenant. And we see this here. There are provisos. There are, as it were, governing boundaries that God is putting in place by which the world will operate. And all of it is given as a means to mediate a world that is marred by sin. So there's two provisions and there's two prohibitions I wanna draw your attention to. The two provisions, one is concerning fruitfulness and the other is concerning food that come in this new humanity under Noah now. You see in verse one, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see in verse seven, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so the creation mandate that was given in Genesis chapter one is still in play. It was in play after Adam and Eve fell. It was in play with Cain. It was in play all the way now down through Noah. And again, what I think we're intended to see here is that the normative pattern that God has designed for human flourishing is still in play. And so the idea of a male and a female being given in marriage that now have the blessing of child rearing and child bearing and the multiplying of image bearers on the earth is a good thing and it is still in play. And yes, we are very aware this side of the fall still of the brokenness that comes with that because of living under a curse where marriage isn't always realized, where having children isn't always realized, where there's tragedy and pain and the sting of death. But the general blessing of the creation mandate 
is still at play. And that is a provision that God gives to still lead towards the flourishing of humanity. But then there's a second provision that's in there with it, and it's the provision of food. And it's interesting here. Starting in verse two and three, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything now. Now I want you to remember in Genesis 1 and 2, part of what was included in Adam and Eve's subduing the earth and exercising dominion over it, part of that creation mandate, was that the earth in return would cooperate with them. That's how it was designed to be in the garden. When Adam was tasked to go out and cultivate the garden, the physical land, the earth would cooperate with him. It would yield its fruit all the time. And, uh, and that happened. And then when the curse happened, now all of a sudden, the earth would no longer cooperate with man anymore. Now you're gonna do it by the, the sweat of your brow. Now it's gonna be hard. It's not going to produce everything that you wanted to produce. And what's interesting though, is also there was a cooperation with the animal realm. You could see that in the garden. You see God parading the animals in front of Adam. There's no harm there. There's no fear there. There's cooperation. Even one day in the, uh, in the future kingdom, we're told the lion laying down with the lamb, there is going to be yet cooperation again. There's no fear there. But something happens and we don't see it. It's not explicitly mentioned in Genesis 3, but now in this new world, we are introduced to a new kind of tension with the animal realm. And many scholars have pointed out that in this new realm, there's a lot of things that change after the flood. There are new realities in the physical earth in which we live post-flood. There are new meteorological conditions. There are now changing climates, as we see at the end of chapter eight, new seasons that are gonna be introduced. We're gonna see the reduction of the uh, lifespan of human beings. No longer are people now living into their 900s as they were in Genesis 6. Now all of a sudden, they're in the mid-hundreds and will soon be on an average lifespan of 70 or 80 by strength. A lot is changing. Some even see this as the place where dinosaurs may have become extinct following this event. Everything changes in this regard. And now what we begin to see is that there's gonna be a more difficult competition for natural resources. With the changing climates and changing seasons, you're going to have a season of harvest and you're going to have seasons of drought. You're going to have to store up where you didn't have to in the garden. And now with this, God, some would see this as a new provision of grace by introducing now another food option, moving from just plants to now being able to eat meat, to eat the animals. And this is the point when all Brisket-loving Texans just said, amen, right here. Took this as their life verse, put it up on their fridge. Uh, But here's the deal, and this is where I think it's interesting. If it's true that man is now going to eat animals, then it makes sense that now is also the time that animals are going to seek to eat men, if we're not careful. And some would see then that God instills a general instinctive fear upon the animal realm towards humanity. Now, there's still an exercising of dominion, but 
rather than us getting picked apart as the image bearers of God, who now are vice regents over the earth, now there is a fear put into the animal realm. And it's the reason why you just go try to pet a wild deer. Good luck to you. They're going to dart off. It's the reason why a bear is going to savagely defend against its cub if threatened. There is a fear in that animal instinctive realm. Now, some animals have yet to get this message, but generally speaking, this is true. And there's a provision. So there's a provision of fruitfulness. Go out, be image bearers, make more image bearers, subdue the earth, exercise dominion, all foods on the table now. You can be a plant eater and a meat eater at the same time. We have all these provisions that are underneath the canopy of God's common grace that is given to this new humanity. But notice there are also now new prohibitions that are woven into this. One of them is also with food. If indeed you're going to now eat meat and eat other animals, then notice the prohibition in verse four, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. So you can no longer eat. If you're gonna eat meat, you can't eat the meat with its lifeblood still in it. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. This is not a commandment about how you are to prepare your steaks. So if you enjoy rare all power to you. Go for it. Enjoy that if you want. That's not what this is about. Rather, the lifeblood here refers to the distinction between how humans are going to eat and how animals are going to eat. And there's a difference. If you've ever turned on National Geographic, you've watched some predator shows, uh, never are you going to find a case of a lion sitting down with another animal and asking permission if it can take its life gently draining its blood from it, roasting it over the fire, giving a prayer of thanksgiving for the wonderful, bountiful provision that the Lord hath given it, and then nicely consume it. That's not how an animal eats. An animal eats its prey with its life still in it. In other words, it kills and eats at the same time. And God makes a distinction here. As humans, we're not going to do that. You're not going to go just eat your animal like a savage beast. Why? Because there is a difference between you and the animal realm, and that is you are made in the image of God. And lifeblood becomes a very important theme in the scriptures. Even this command right here is setting up the sacrificial system that will be codified under Mosaic law, where an animal is sacrificed. It gives its life for the forgiveness of sins someone else uh, in the sacrificial system. And I've talked about this many, many times before. That's on purpose. You don't, you're not called to take the ear of a lamb because then you just get its hearing. You're not to sacrifice the eyes of the lamb because then you just get its seeing. You're to sacrifice the blood of the lamb because in the blood you get its life. And so there is a dignity there. And so just like we see with Adam, remember in Genesis 1, Adam or Genesis 2, Adam was given a prohibition with food. You can eat of anything you want, but this one thing you cannot do. In the same way to Noah, you're told you can now eat anything you want, but this one thing that you shall not do. It is a paralleling of creation. But not just for food, there's also a prohibition towards our own fellow man. And you see this, speaking of the image of God and the dignity of human life, look at this in verse five and six. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. 
From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What we have here is the idea that would later become known as capital punishment. Now, the Latin phrase that is derived from verse 6 is lex talionis, which means an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. While certainly our country, and I have no doubt even in this room, we would be divided on our emotions towards capital punishment. And we would debate this issue all the way until Jesus returns uh, of how it should be played out in our American judicial system. I don't want you to miss what it was about here. And it's very significant. Uh, It's purpose here from God, even mentioning it under the Noahic covenant, Um, is that God is giving us a picture of what true justice looks like and what true restraint looks like in a world that is marred by sin. Now, we didn't have this command when God was talking to Adam. Hey, eat from whatever tree you want. Don't eat of this tree. And by the way, when you murder somebody, man, you're going to have to lay down. We didn't get that command. Why? Because that wasn't in the picture in the garden. But it is now. This is a world that is marred by sin and God is giving a new decree to a new humanity in a new reality. And the decrees are now going to help us navigate the marring of sin. And so what happens here is the world that Noah inherits is still marred by sin. You're gonna see in the very next half of this chapter next week, even Noah and his sons are already gonna engage in sin and just first moments back out of the ark. It's going to happen. But understand this. The reason this justice is here is because without this decree of life for life, when it comes to murder, without this decree, what you will get is you will get Genesis 4.4. And you don't have to turn there. Let me remind you. Genesis 4.4 was about a man named Lamech. Lamech, remember him? Lamech was the one from Cain's line who had a perverted view of justice. And in fact, it wasn't justice at all. It was called vengeance. And it was disproportionate because in that text, Lamech had been hit. He'd been punched by a guy. And so Lamech murdered him for punching him. And then he boasted in it and said, I dare anybody to come after me and try to lay a hand on me because God's going to protect me. It was a very perverted view of justice. It was vengeance. And so what God does here is he institutes the foundations of a righteous justice system whereby the exercise of justice will be proportionate to the crime. There will be no partiality with God. There is not gonna be such thing as showing favoritism for this one person who commits this crime and this extreme punishment for the other person who commits the same crime. That is not in God's justice system here. And it's why here, what God is going to do is he's going to actually dignify the equality of human life that is made in the image of God by not allowing one to be superior over the other. And when you take this passage along with Genesis 1 and the Imago Dei, the image of God that we saw in creation, it is the reason why we are to reject the idea that some forms of human life are greater than other forms of human life. 
whereby we fall in the trap of embedding worth into one's age, that this particular demographic of age, they're expendable and this one is prime or embedding worth into race and ethnicity and saying this ethnic background is indispensable and this one, who cares? Or embedding worth into disability, that somebody who's fully able-bodied is, is non-expendable, but the one that's disabled, well, they're expendable. Or embedding worth into social status or life in the womb or outside the womb or an immigrant versus a native of somehow trying to say one is more superior to another. If there is no ultimate standard of divine justice, then the standard is according to whatever you feel is right in the moment. Sorry, and that is, that no, I'm not going to say it again, Siri. Leave me alone. Um, once is enough. But the truth is, if you only hold to your own subjective opinion, then you're no better than Lamech. And unfortunately, that's what happens even in our governmental systems is it's filled with infallible people. And we give our own broken assessments. But what God is doing right here under the Noahic covenant, he's weaving into the fabric of this new creation, this new humanity, what proportionate justice should look like. And, um, and where we see all human life, all blood, is dignified. Now, as Christians, we can disagree about how the death penalty ought to be administered. We can disagree with that. We can disagree about whether it can be justly administered. We can disagree. But clearly, the Bible does give us the category for capital punishment here and justice, and is even affirmed in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13. And thus, again, God is weaving into the fabric of this new world the foundations of human government and stewarding the creation as he has made it, taking into account a world that is marred by sin. And let me just say this. When you find a government that believes that everyone is inherently good, you are going to have a horrific society. You're going to have a Darwinistic society. But when you have a government that recognizes God's view that there is a world that is marred by sin, now we can use the proper justice for the crimes that are committed and distribute them fairly and equally because of the image of God that is found in every human being. Now, there are the provisions and the prohibitions. We've seen the promise. The last thing I want you to see here is its picture, the sign that we are given of this covenant. I mentioned before in the Bible, there are many covenants that God makes with his people. There is, um, some would argue, there's debatable that there was a covenant made with Adam. Uh, Hosea tends, uh, as a, Hosea tells us that there actually are other covenants that are like Adam. So it leads us to believe there was a covenant going on there. There was a, if you do this, then this that was there. We have the Noahic covenant that's here in Genesis chapter nine. In fact, uh, in the flood account, it's the very first mention of the Hebrew word covenant that shows up in your entire Bible. Berit is right here in this account. But you're also going to see it later on with Abraham. You're going to see it uh, with Moses. You're going to see a covenant made through David. And you're even going to see what's called the new covenant that is made uh, with God's people. And again, one might argue that this is the primary way in which God 
relates to his people is through his covenants, a God of unwavering faithfulness to not just make, but keep his promises to redeem a people for himself. Now, it's not uncommon that when God does make a covenant with his people, that he'll use signs. He'll use a picture to both signify and ratify the covenant that is being made. For instance, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, it has a sign that is attached to it called circumcision. And then when God makes the covenant with Moses, the 10 commandments are given. There is a sign that is associated with it. It's actually the, the covenant of the, the commandment of Sabbath is actually the sign, the Sabbath is what's gonna be the sign of the Mosaic covenant. When we get to the new covenant in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the sign that is gonna be given is the Holy Spirit indwelling God's people. And the way that we testify to that, that we have accepted God's provision in Jesus Christ and not rejected it is through the sign of baptism. Even in my own marriage, which we have a two-way human covenant, we have a sign called our wedding ring that many people still choose to use that is signifying the unending covenant that we have made till death do us part. Signs are normal in many of the covenants and here is no exception. God gives a sign and the sign that he gives is a rainbow. And you see it in verse 13, verse 14, and verse 16. But what's interesting, if you have the ESV translation as I do, they translate it rightly. They don't translate it rainbow, they actually translate it bow because that's the word that's used in Hebrew here. It's the same word that is used of an archer's bow. And they understand, and many scholars would agree, this is probably what's going on right here, is that in ancient times, when a king would go out to battle and would conquer triumphantly over the people that waged war with him, when he returned, he would oftentimes take the vessel of his hostility, his his bow, and would hang it up on his mantle as a sign of peace that is now to reign over the land. And in many ways, God is saying here, the type of judgment that brought my hostility towards you has now ceased. And never again will I wipe out the earth with a flood. I'm hanging up that bow for that type of judgment right here for you. Now, we know it's a rainbow that's used here. It's hung up in the clouds. It's following the flood, the rain. This is a rainbow. A couple things about this sign of a rainbow that I think are worth mentioning. One, I want you to notice who the sign is for. And it's maybe different than what you'd expect. Many of us would go, well, it's the sign for us where every time we see a rainbow after the rain, we should think, oh, well, God is a God of faithfulness and he'll never flood the earth again. And that's true by way of implication, but that's not what the text says. Notice who the sign is for in both Verse 14 and 15, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. In verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. This is a covenant for God. But what does it mean that God would remember? Does that mean that God would forget like, is God like us that he just has these slips and moments? Is he in need of Alexa and Siri to help remind him of an upcoming flood event that he needs to hold off from real quick and go, yeah, bring it back, God. Is that what he needs? No, that's not what it's talking about here. God is perfectly omniscient. He's not forgetting anything. Now, when the Hebrew word for remember is used, it is often used to describe God's drawing near to the object of his affections. 
It is a demonstration of God's faithfulness to draw near to his people. Every time that rainbow appears after a storm, it is a reminder that the God of the heavens and the earth who could judge the whole thing right now through a flood has instead drawn near to his people in faithfulness and mercy. It's a beautiful picture that is given here of God's faithfulness towards us. Now, having said that, I have to speak just for a moment to its usage today. Uh, Worldwide right now, especially in America, that is not what the sign of the rainbow is used for. And I can assure you when I wrote this message, when I actually planned out our teaching series in the book of Genesis, I didn't go, oh, June, let's put Genesis 9 right there. Let's have that be strategically placed there. I went about to about a week and a half ago. I was like, oh, this is coming in June. This is Pride Month, as Google has put a prayer reminder on my calendar for me, has put it right there. And here's the deal. It has become a sign in our culture concerning sexual revolution and concerning rebellion towards the design that God has given. And I want to say a couple things. One is it's actually not surprising to me how our adversary, the devil, works. He loves to counterfeit that which God initiates. It's, it's, it's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians that even Satan goes around masquerading as an angel of light. He loves to counterfeit. And it's not surprising to me how Satan could take a sign that was originally used to show that the creator has ended his war in covenant with his creation and now turn around and reshape that sign into a sign that says creation has now begun a war in rebellion to its creator. Now, I want you to note, we love, I love our friends in the LGBTQ community. I mean, they're made in the image of God. We have far too much radicalized hate in our world that has no place We have been seeing this over and over in the book of Genesis. All human beings are made in the image of God and have the dignity of God's stamp on their soul. Every human being. So we love our friends in the LGBTQ community. But at the same time, the scriptures are clear. Romans 1 is emphatically clear that the pinnacle of human rebellion is not just when the creation operates contrary to the design of the creator, but when we actually celebrate our doing it. And I find it incredibly ironic. The very first sin in the Bible is pride. It is Lucifer before Creation was even created saying, I will not be like God. I will not be subject to God. I will be like God. I will take his throne. And Satan is judged and cast down to the earth. And then there in the garden is now the same enticement of Adam and Eve going, I will not bend the knee to God. I will be like God. I will determine for myself what my flourishing will be. I will determine for myself what everybody else in humanity's flourishing will be. And I will sit on the throne and I will make the edicts and I will not surrender to God and his design. 
It is the sin of pride that fills our hearts. And Ephesians chapter five tells us we are to take no part in fellowship with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. We are not to join into the celebration for something that we should be throwing a funeral over and not parades. Something that Jesus gave his very life for. But certainly we have to be mindful of how our use of the rainbow is interpreted. And it saddens me that we might want to give up on the rainbow because of the cultural tide that's around us and there's no place for that. Now you have to use discretion for those of you that are real big Noahic Covenant fans, like really super psyched to hang your rainbow flag outside your door so your whole neighborhood can understand that God is not going to flood the earth anymore and they don't have to live in fear. For those that are really psyched about doing that, you might just want to know that is not how it will be considered or interpreted by those around you. But don't let today's culture rob the meaning of what the rainbow stands for, which is God's faithfulness to humanity, God's mercy towards humanity. This is the Noahic covenant towards humanity, a provision of mercy and grace and justice for a new humanity heading back into a world that is now marred by sin and the promise that he will never again judge the earth through the flood. Many have called this covenant the covenant of common grace, meaning God's faithful provision upon the just and the unjust every single day, providing common graces of blessing that the world can enjoy as a gift from God and his divine restraint. Even Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verse 45, for he who makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The apostle Paul said in Acts 14, God did not leave himself without witness For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I guess my question for us as we land the plane on this text, have you ever stopped to think that in a world that is as broken and as hurting and as filled with evil as ours is right now, have you ever stopped to think about how it could actually be worse if it weren't for God's beautiful common grace of restraint. Like this is the difference between total depravity and utter depravity. Total depravity is the biblical doctrine that every part of every one of us is infected with sin. Utter depravity is when you are as bad as you could be. And by God's divine grace, he has restrained evil from being what it could We see pockets of it in certain times, in certain places, in certain cities and locations. But by his divine grace, he's given restraint and instead he's given us actual abundant blessings to be thankful for on this earth. And so I would just simply exhort every one of us, myself included with this, of what it would look like to be more aware of the everyday mercies that God has given us. For example, when you lay your head on your pillow tonight, and you sleep knowing that the earth will still be sustained while you're sleeping by the God who controls it. Remember his faithfulness. When you wake up in the morning and you see the sunrise that came up yet again, remember his faithfulness. 
when you sit down at a meal either this evening or tomorrow, and whether you choose to enjoy a beautiful garden salad for all my vegetarians, or whether you want to sink your teeth into a nice steak for all the carnivores in here, and whatever drink you have, a great glass of wine or whatever your drink is, you would do so with gladness at God's faithfulness. When you show up to a wedding and singles, even if it's not your own, and you show up to a wedding and you watch a man and a woman given to one another in, in the covenant of marriage and know that is God's faithfulness at work in humanity. When you behold a newborn child, so I went to a baby shower yesterday. When you behold a newborn child, even in the pain and the awful sting of infertility and, and child deaths we have in this world, I know but when you behold someone else or that new child, remember God's faithfulness of the creation mandate going forth. When, when, you, when you go out to East Texas and you spot that deer that you can't catch darting off, remember God's faithfulness. When, when the seasons come and you get 10 straight days of 103 degrees this week, remember God's faithfulness. Just at the end of chapter eight, as it says, we have been given different seasons. This season won't always be this way. It will cool off for about two weeks in the fall, but it will cool off. Remember God's faithfulness. And on the day when a nasty Dallas thunderstorm rolls through and you see that rainbow in the sky, oh, remember God's faithfulness. But church, even, that, even then, we're reminded this, Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And yet, when you know that none of these common graces that we just described, as good as they are, are still not enough. When preservation is not what we need the most, but salvation in a broken and fallen world where we have experienced sin and the separation from God. We know it's salvation that we need the most and yet be encouraged again in this. There is a promise that still remains. That Genesis 3.15 promise of a Messiah who would come, his name is Jesus Christ, who would take the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, and place them on himself on a cross and shed his blood for us, thereby absorbing the just wrath of God that is due us that will come in the end of judgment on earth and was put on him. And through faith in him, we have his righteousness, the forgiveness of sins and his new mercies every morning. Remember his faithfulness to you. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this passage a reminder that in a world that is marred by sin, a world that is so broken, that God, one, we have been graciously lavished with your everyday mercies. The food that we eat, shelter we experience, the divine constraint from as bad as it could be. God, you've been kind to us. And yet even the greatest demonstration of your grace and your mercy towards us the greatest demonstration 
is your son, Jesus Christ, who shed his own lifeblood, who gave his life so that we could live. Help us to walk in light of that promise. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.